Or in, <laughs> this is the evening. This evening, we're going to finish looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we might ask ourselves, how do you finish a letter to a church that you're very concerned about? Paul was in prison when he wrote his letter to the Colossians. And we've seen that these people were being tempted away from their belief in the sufficiency of Christ. They were a church that was threatened by false teaching. All the way through the letter, Paul has worked to remind the Colossians of the sufficiency of Christ. And now as he finishes the letter, he has a final word for these believers. It's a very simple word. He calls them to persevere, to keep going. They are to persevere in prayer, in witness, and in fellowship. And this is a good time for us to hear the simple word from God, persevere. We're going to pick up at chapter 4, verse 2. And in the Church Bible, that's page 1184. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word. And as he closes this letter, first of all, Paul says, persevere in prayer. In the NIV, verse 2 begins with, devote yourselves to prayer. 
Other ways of translating it would be remain constant or continue faithful. Paul is calling them to be determined and not to give up. Back in chapter 1, he said to them, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And he wants these believers to be as devoted to prayer as he is. As far back as the late 1800s, a man called Benjamin Warfield said that church life seemed to have become all work and no praying. If he saw that as a problem way back then, I wonder what he'd say about churches today. It's so easy for churches to become just activity centers, places where there's lots of busyness, but not very much dependence on God through prayer. A pastor today called Eugene Peterson has said, we are busy because we are lazy. At first, that doesn't seem to make sense. But actually, he's making an important point. It doesn't require much effort to become busy. All we have to do is start reacting to whatever comes along. Often, it's actually easier to go with the flow and be busy than to force ourselves to stop. And to ask, what should our priorities be? What does God actually call us to do? Is He automatically pleased with what we're doing just because we're busy? Or would He be more pleased if His church would do the hard work of devoting themselves to prayer? Getting busy with lots of church activities can be easier than settling down to the spiritual warfare of prayer. When we read the New Testament, it's amazing how much Paul did. But I don't think he was a busy man in the sense that he ran around determined to be just doing something. He was a man devoted to prayer. And as he devoted himself to prayer, he was directed by God to those activities that were worthwhile. This morning we heard about the Holy Spirit preventing Paul from heading in certain directions. And I would suspect that that guidance came at least in part as Paul prayed. And as a result of that, the things that he did counted. And Paul felt that this was an important thing for every church to get right. As well as here, he gives the same call to prayer in Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and 1 Timothy. When a church seems to have lost some of its direction and purpose, the answer is not to launch into even more busy activity. The answer is for the church to devote itself to prayer and persevere in prayer. And then be ready to be directed and used by God. In recent years, several of our own church activities have come to an end. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Those ministries were used by God. And they were used for a time. And then they came to an end. It could be that God is prodding us actually to be a bit less busy as a church. 
to do less but do it better. And surely one of the things that we could get better is our devotion to prayer. Paul has some things now to say about what our prayer is to be like. First of all, he says it's to be watchful. What does he have in mind? Well, I think he means watchful for Christ's return. Back in chapter 3, he called the Colossians to set their minds and hearts on things above. And he called them to set their minds and hearts also on the day when Christ appears. Here I think he's calling them to pray with that same awareness. The New Testament is constantly calling us to think about Jesus' return and to live in the light of his return. And surely the reason for that is because we forget it so easily. It's so easy for us to live as if this big rock that we live on is going to keep spinning forever. But it isn't. It's easy to live as if day is going to keep following night forever. But it isn't. Christ is going to come back. And there will be a new heaven and earth. And there will be no more night. In our prayers, we have to pray with that day in mind. Watchfully. Paul also says we are to be thankful. It's important to be expectant for the future as Christians. And it's also important to remember what God has already given us. In chapter 1, Paul reminded the Colossians that God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When our prayers are watchful, we're not going to live as if this life is all there is. And when our prayers are also thankful, then we're not going to be grim and grumpy while we wait for Christ's return. We are amazingly blessed today. Paul also says that our prayers are to be focused on our mission. Back when we looked at chapter 1, we said that our prayers aren't to be focused on things like broken down cars, leaky roofs, varicose veins, or dead bunnies. The bunny got mentioned back then because another pastor had just told me he was in a prayer meeting where people were praying for someone whose bunny had died. I admit I have never suffered the trauma of losing a bunny. So I don't want to be insensitive. But surely instead of things like that, our prayers are to focus on what God is doing. And what God is doing in this world is bringing glory to himself by bringing glory to his son. And what his church is to be doing is sharing the good news of what God has done through his son. He has offered hope to all mankind through sending Jesus to the cross. When Paul asks for prayer for himself, and he asks for personal prayer six other times in his letters, 
When he asks for prayer, his personal requests are always mission-focused. Look at verse 3. Pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Paul asks for opportunities to share the good news and also the ability to share it clearly. Now today, we know Paul as maybe the greatest thinker and preacher the church has ever had. But he does not assume he's going to be able to get the message across. He doesn't rely on his skills. He knows that he needs God to be at work through him. And Paul says his message is the mystery of Christ. He's described it that way earlier on in the letter too. It's a way of talking about God's plan to incorporate both Jews and Gentiles into one new people of God. God has made that plan a reality through the work of Christ on the cross. We've seen in the book of Acts that it's through Jesus that men and women are forgiven and reconciled to God. Whatever our background might be, we all come to God the same way. And we're all received by God the same way, by grace, as we trust in Jesus and his work. That was Paul's message. But he knew that without the work of the Holy Spirit, human hearts won't receive the message. John Calvin has said that human hearts are like doors that are barred and bolted against the message. We have to persevere in praying that God will open a door for our message. And we have to pray for the words to speak clearly when we get the chance to speak. Our prayers need to be focused on our mission. And that leads Paul to call us to persevere in witness. He has called the church to be devoted to prayer. And now he makes it clear, devotion to prayer is not to be a substitute for obedience. I mentioned Benjamin Warfield earlier on. And he was right to warn against church life that was all work and no praying. And the great missionary C.T. Studd was equally right to say that like faith, prayer without works is dead. We are foolish if we neglect prayer. It's the foundation for everything we do. But we are also disobedient if we pray while refusing to carry out our mission. Look what Paul says in verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Someone has said, this is a call to be tactful yet bold in our Christian witness. A couple of weeks ago as we looked at Acts, we saw the need for both truth and love. We must not compromise on the truth. And at the same time, we must be sensitive in the way we share the truth. Some of us know that it is possible to beat someone down in an argument 
and yet lose them to the truth. That's called winning the battle but losing the war. As we talk to people, our words are to be full of grace. Not condoning sin, not giving people the impression they're okay without Jesus, but still full of grace. When Paul says our words are to be seasoned with salt, he means that we should choose our words carefully. Some of us are tempted to make the excuse, well, I just say what I think. It's just the way I am. I say what I think and I worry about the consequences later. But we can't get away with that excuse. We all have to make an effort to be careful about our words. It's not always easy to take them back later. Paul says that just like salt, our words should have a helpful flavor to them. In Ephesians, he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. In other words, if it's not likely to be helpful then don't say it. And here Paul says that we are to know how to answer everyone. Literally, we are to know how to answer each one. What he's saying is we can't take the same approach with everybody. Some people react quite well to a blunt challenge. They like it when things are put to them straight. With other people, we have to take a more gradual approach. And it's also true that some people are only looking for a fight. They don't really want to listen. With people like that, there comes a time to just walk away and stop trying to answer them. The book of Proverbs deals with this. Proverbs says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. You'll notice that those two verses are found side by side. And they are not contradicting one another. They are making the point that we can't take the same approach with everyone. We have to treat people as individuals. And we need to pray for discernment with each one. We need to discern whether they really want to listen or whether they just want an argument to impress themselves with their own wisdom. One of the most helpful books that I've found on this is called Questioning Evangelism. It's not questioning the value of evangelism. It helps us to use questions in evangelism. Some of you I know have read that already. And I recommend it to those of you who haven't read it on this subject of knowing how to answer each one. I'd be happy to get a copy for you if you're interested. As a church body and as individuals, we are to persevere in witness. Then Paul finishes his letter with a long list of names and greetings. But I think it would be a mistake to ignore these verses because they challenge us actually to persevere in fellowship. 
These final verses show us what we could call the many sides of fellowship. They show us that fellowship includes encouragements and also forgiveness. They show us that fellowship is often unpredictable. People aren't always predictable. And so often situations don't turn out in predictable ways. Persevering in fellowship means we have to be willing to adjust when surprises come along. And we have to enter into relationships even though we know very well that people can let us down. God never will, but people can. This list shows us all these sides of fellowship. Behind the names that are mentioned here, there are some unusual situations. I'm going to focus in on just a few of them. In fact, four. The first two names that we'll look at show us that fellowship is about welcome, forgiveness, and restoration. In verses 7 and 8, Paul mentions a man called Tychicus. He's going to bring the Colossians news about Paul. Remember that Paul himself is in prison. We're not going to focus on Tychicus. We don't really know much about him. But notice what verse 9 says. That a man called Onesimus is coming with Tychicus. And we do know quite a lot about Onesimus. He was a runaway slave. His story is found in Paul's letter to Philemon. Philemon was a leader in the church here in Colossae. And it seems that Onesimus stole from Philemon and then cleared off. But later he met Paul, he became a Christian, and Paul sent him back to Philemon. He sent him with a personal letter asking Philemon to forgive him. But here Paul is asking the whole church in Colossae to receive Onesimus. In verse 9 Paul calls him our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. Many of these people may have known Onesimus before he left. And maybe he wasn't the nicest character. But he's not the same person he was back then. Now he's a brother in the Lord. And these people in the church are to give him a welcome and they are to show him forgiveness. If we are going to persevere in fellowship, And somewhere along the line, we have to be willing to accept former enemies as new members of the family. Whatever a person's past sin might be, if they have repented and turned to Christ, then God has accepted them. And we must be willing to accept them too. In verse 10, Paul says that his fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends greetings. And then he says in verse 10, as does Mark, the the cousin of Barnabas, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Mark's full name is John Mark, and he is a failed leader. We heard about him this morning. This morning we saw that Paul and Barnabas took him along on their first missionary journey But during the missionary journey, he deserted them and he went back home. He didn't have good reason to go home. He just bailed out. 
And we saw this morning that Paul and Barnabas disagreed over whether there was any way back for John Mark. Paul thought no. Barnabas thought yes. But eventually, under the careful guidance of Barnabas, John Mark regained his reputation. And Paul was big enough to reconcile with him. Paul accepted him as a co-worker again. And by the time he was writing his second letter to Timothy, Paul was able to write that John Mark is helpful to me in my ministry. And here, Paul commends him to the Colossians. It seems that the church have been informed that this man is once again involved in ministry. And Paul gives his personal support to that. In verse 10, he says, if he comes to you, welcome him. Part of persevering in fellowship means there must not only be a willingness to forgive, but when there has been failure, there must also be opportunity for restoration. And I believe that among us here as a fellowship, there is a genuine willingness to see restoration. Restoration doesn't mean we ignore failures. It means we're eager to see those who have failed being restored in the future. And then if we're going to persevere in fellowship, we have to be willing to show commitment, even though results are uncertain. Sometimes people let us down. Sometimes we put a lot of trust in people and things go wrong. But we must be willing to commit ourselves despite all that uncertainty. God will never let us down. We've said that. And we must be content with that. If we insist on everybody else being perfectly reliable all the time, then we're going to get pretty cynical pretty quickly. How does this connect with our passage? Well, after mentioning the tireless worker Epaphras, who we already heard about in chapter 1, and then the doctor Luke, Paul mentions a man called Demas in verse 14. And the story of Demas's ministry is almost the mirror image of John Mark's. At this point, Demas is a faithful co-worker with Paul, and he has been for some time. But later on, he deserts. In 2 Timothy, just before he mentions how useful the now-restored John Mark is, Paul says this about Demas. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. It wasn't that Demas left to pursue ministry in another place. After many years of faithful ministry, he left because he loved this world more. Demas is a warning to us. We have to guard our hearts. No matter how many years of faithfulness we have under our belt, we have to fight against falling in love with this present world. We have to keep nurturing our love for God. 
Demas is a warning to us, and he's also a reminder that sometimes people will let us down. Even long-time leaders and examples in the faith can go on to desert. If and when that happens, we mustn't become cynical. We must still be committed to fellowship, even though we really don't know what all the outcomes are going to be. As we think about Demas, we need to hear Paul's message for Archippus down in verse 17. He says to this man, or he asks the believers to say to this man, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Whatever others might do, whatever might happen around us, we are called, each one of us, to persevere in prayer, in witness, and in fellowship. Paul began by calling us to be watchful. And if we are going to persevere, then we need to stay watchful. Whether things seem to be going well or seem to be going badly, we have to keep our hearts and minds set on Christ's return. And we're going to close with a song that says, We belong to the day.